Welcome to the Living Faith Fellowship Conference podcast. The Living Faith Fellowship is a peer network of like-minded churches united under a single biblical authority and one common mission. You're about to hear a message from one of the many conferences hosted by the Living Faith Fellowship every year. We pray it's a blessing. All right. We ready to go? Been jam-packed, hasn't it? You guys worn out? Can you handle this one more time? I keep, I got this business card this guy gave me, and it just keeps falling out every day. I don't know if you've seen me pick that business card up like seven times. Maybe the Lord's telling me something. Uh, um, so, man, it's been such a, an honor to to do this with Kenny Morgan. I mean, there's not a person on earth uh, that I that I would rather be doing this with. Um, fellowshipping with him is sweet. Studying with him is sweet. Preaching with him is sweet. Um, and so I, I just, I want to I thank Kenny for the time that he's given me and given this, um, you know, given to this work. Um, I want to thank FBC um, for, for just, you know, Troy, his vision. Um, I, I felt like the, the, the conference has been incredibly appropriate, uh, that it hasn't been uh, just for FBC. It's been for the whole fellowship, for our church. It's been a blessing uh, for Lee and for Code and all the energy and, and time that they've put into studying and, and listening to the Lord. Um, we are a blessed people. We are a blessed people. And um, you know what happens when you get blessed? You get spoiled. And... Um, you forget to recognize what you truly have. And so let's be grateful uh, the way that Saul wasn't, <laughs> right? Let's, let's have some gratitude before the Lord in terms of what he's given us. The first morning session that we had together, we talked about what character traits do we want to pass on to the next generation. And so we did some self-examination. We, we, we looked at the life of Samuel and Saul, particularly in 1 Samuel 15, in that scenario to assess uh, what it looks like to lead poorly, but also to lead the way God intended. And so uh, I pray that that was beneficial. Yesterday we explored what it means to identify leadership qualities among those we're investing in. In our congregations, there are so many kinds of leaders, so many different kinds of people. But there are also leaders of distinction. And these are the future pastors and, and shepherds uh, of our churches and, and of future church plants. How do we, we ask ourselves, how do we want to distinguish healthy traits from unhealthy traits? How do we go about distinguishing those healthier traits from among the unhealthy traits? Now today we're going to be discussing what it means to establish a generation of mighty men. And so uh, t- today is supposed to be probably the most uh, uplifting, right? So if it's felt very sober and heavy, uh, today hopefully will be a little bit more exciting, um, but we're going to we're going to ask ourselves what does it look like to raise up men and women who we trust will stay with the truth and advance it in the world, who will stick with what we taught them, and then find ways for their generation to advance those truths within the world that they live in. Now, I know that a lot of what we're talking about is geared towards pastors. Um, 
But, but I want you to know it's actually for every leader. Our hope is that this would be for every leader. Uh, our hope is that, that in all of our churches, the leaders would raise up and, and disciple and train a generation of mighty men and women that are warriors of the faith. And so I pray that, that everyone's getting something from the content. And I hope that today is exciting and beneficial to you. It's always fun to talk about the mighty men. Um, so this is, this is exciting content. I am going to focus my attention, just so you know, just to give you a heads up. Uh, I'm going to focus my attention on how David developed his soldiers. Okay? And so we're going to talk about what it looked like for those mighty men to be raised up within the ranks. And how David went about leading them, some of the struggles he had in leading them. And then I'm going to hand off uh, to Kenny, and Kenny's going to, to, to devote his attention to the mighty men themselves and what they were able to achieve um, and how God used them and, and what their character traits were. And so, um, anyway, I'm, I'm excited. So let's pray and ask the Lord to be with us. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, um, there's so much to say, and uh, I'm, I'm afraid of trying to say too much. And so, God, I pray that you would be with my mind and my heart, that you would use me to, to communicate exactly what you want to be communicated today. Um, more importantly than that, um, I mean, I, you're big enough to set me aside. I know that. But, Lord, would you speak directly uh, to the hearts and the minds of the people in this room? And would you... So, so gently and, and graciously whisper to them exactly what they need to apply, um, exactly the ways in which they need to, to move forward in faith according to your word, that you would show them what it means to lead, if there are things that need to be corrected in the way that they approach their leadership. Um, I'm just asking, Lord, that you would have your way. And so be with us in this time, in Christ's name. Amen. So where we're going to start today is with an anointed David on the run. On the run. Saul has just declared David a traitor, a traitor of the kingdom. And so David is very confused. Uh, he is a man uh, without identity. He is a man with no friends. He looks around and, and he's got no one with him. And he, um, he's wandering around, and he's hungry. <laughs> he wants a meal. He wants a meal in his belly. And he's weaponless. He, he, he's, he didn't have time to grab any of his supplies. He took off running, and he's got no weaponry, nothing to defend him, nothing to protect him. And David um, wanders. Uh, it doesn't tell us how long, but he wanders for at least a few days, I suppose, two miles north uh, to a city called Nob. And Nob uh, is a place where he believes that he might have a friend. And so he goes to the priest uh, Ahimelech in the city of Nob, and he inquires about some food. And he comes in, and he's a little bit deceptive because he's, he's, tre you know, he's trepidatious about his relationships, right? Uh, Saul just threw him out. And so he's not 100% sure who his allies are and who they aren't. And so, and, uh, you know, uh, desperate men do desperate things. And so he, uh, you know, sa sadly uh, is a little bit deceptive here. 
um, because he's confused and scared. And so when he goes to Himelech, he's like, hey, man, uh, you know, I was dispatched by, by, by Saul, and I'm here on secret business. And uh, don't worry about, no, the troops, they're back there. They're over there. And don't worry about them. I'm just real hungry. <laughs> the men are hungry. Do you have any bread? And so, you know, we know the story. Ahimelech provides him with some bread, and, and he fills his, his stomach. And, and uh, he asks, look, do, are, there any, are there any weapons around here? <laughs> just a weird question. And Ahimelech's like, like that, that would be the point where Ahimelech's like, something's fishy, right? When has David ever not had a weapon, right? And, uh, and you know, he said, well, in my haste, you know, whatever. And so Ahimelech provides him with the, the sword of Goliath. And he says, there is none like this. There is no sword on the face of the planet like this. And uh, David takes that sword. And so in some ways, God has given him everything that he needs. He's got a full stomach. Uh, he's got a sword in his hand. And, uh, and, and then he he- heads out into the, to the wilderness. And he roams around and he finds himself at Gath. And uh, he's hoping that he can blend in around, uh, among the Gittites. And he's, he's hoping that, that if he just slips in, that he can find a, some, some rest. He can gather his thoughts. He can put together a plan. And so his hope is that no one will recognize him. But when he gets there, they're like, oh, wait, we know you. You killed Goliath. And aren't you the one that they sing about? They sing about you killing your ten thousands of Philistines. Yeah, we don't like you. You don't get to hang out here, right? And so he kind of freaks out. And so they grab him and they, and they bring him before Achish, uh, who is the king of Gath. Gath is a city that sits along the Mediterranean. Uh, and, and so we know the Philistines, they're seafaring people. And so this is one of their major cities. They bring him before Achish. And Achish, uh, he presents himself to Achish as though he's crazy, Again, because he's confused and he's worried. He's, he's, he's not trusting in the Lord, okay? And, and so he just isn't there yet. He's not in a place where he's trusting the Lord. And so, so in his best plans, he acts like he's a crazy person. And Achish is like, bro, I don't have time for this. You're, what, what are you doing bringing madmen in, into, into my, my office? I got paperwork. Don't you know I'm, I'm a busy man? Get this, get this crazy guy out of here. And so, man, in God's grace and in David's stupidity and in, and in Achish's naivety, uh, David somehow gets out of that, that situation unscathed and he's back on the run. And you know, God has given him everything that he needs to survive. But until God gives him mighty men, he can't thrive. So he goes and he goes into the cave of Adullam, which we find him. We'll find him there again later in our story. Uh, but but um, he finds himself in the cave of Adullam, hiding out and thinking, "What am I going to do? What's the plan? What's my purpose?" Where do I go? I have no one in the world. And that's, that's where we pick up. That's where we pick up. David is now hiding in the cave. And in 1 Samuel 22, 1, it says, David therefore departed thence and escaped to the cave of Adullam. And when his brethren and all his father's house heard it, 
they went down uh, thither to him. And so, so the, the house of Jesse comes and gathers around him. But listen, they don't come alone. And everyone that was in distress, and everyone... <clears throat> It's too early for that. And everyone that was in distress and everyone that was in debt and everyone that was discontented gathered themselves unto him. Jesus. And he became a captain over them. And they were with him about 400 men. And so there's a very important point that we need to make right up front, and it's this. And this is for pastors. We need to hear this. If it's an anointed work, God has every intention of supplying the help. You know, so many of us are pining. We're pining for leaders. Pining for leaders to come alongside us, to support us. You know, we're convinced, pastors are convinced that what God has given us is critical work. It's so important to us. And we want so desperately sometimes for just for one leader, for one mighty man. If God, if you could just give me a, a small group, a small battalion of men that, that would just believe in this work and own it at the level that I, that I own it, that the level of seriousness that, that I devote to this work, if I could just have that, I'm so desperate. We also want our 400. But this takes us back to the first day when we talked about Saul. Because the work has to be anointed. And that's the first thing that we have to establish. Because God could no longer bless Saul because even though he was anointed, his work wasn't. So a lot of it has to do with determining whether or not the work that you're involved with is actually anointed work. I learned this from Jeff Bartell a long time ago, and it stuck with me. I think it stuck with a lot of us. Jeff said, <clears throat> uh, when, 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 when addressing what we do with our leaders, that we want sent ones, not went ones. We, 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 want, we want sent ones, not went ones. In other words, we want to train up people who do anointed work, okay? That they don't do it of their own volition, that they don't do it in their own pride, their own determination, but we, the local church sends people. That's what we do. We, we uh, ordain men and we send them. So in other words, anointed work is work that is prompted by the Holy Spirit. In other words, it's not a personal vision. It's a vision from God. And it's sanctioned by the local church, not our buddies that co-sign whatever we want to do in a back alley somewhere, you know, which is what a lot of pastors are doing. A lot of, a lot of men want to, to, to work that way. They want to work around. They want to circumvent the authority structure that God's given them. And so they're like Absalom and Adonijah, and they're plotting and they're scheming, and that's how they do their work. That's not anointed work. If you're a disciple-making ministry, and you have an anointed work, a work that's sanctioned by your local church, and it's of the Spirit, God has every intention of supplying you with the men and women that you need in ministry. 
We have to believe that. So David had the anointed work. God was with David, and so he brought him the fellowship that he needed. But note, but note this, that the supply didn't come until David had been tested. He'd been broken. See, David had known great victory, but in this moment, he was a broken man, a defeated man, a man at his lowest point. And at his lowest point and at his greatest humility, that's when God, was, God said, hey, look, I got some guys for you. I got some help. And I wonder, sometimes we, we ask ourselves, man, where are the men that can help me with what's going on? And I ask, I ask are you humble enough to receive them? Have you let the Lord do the work of breaking you and humbling you and recognizing in your heart how great a work it really is and how much, how much you need him? How much you really need the Lord to come through? And I don't think God is in, under any obligation to follow your timeline or your timetable. So you don't have what you want right now. It doesn't mean he's not going to provide it. He's asking you to humble yourself, to be patient before him, to trust him for every need. So, so here is a broken man with no friends. And in the right moment, the right moment, God provides. Now what kind of men are mighty men? What kind of men make mighty men? I want to point out to you that they're not always what you imagine that they should be. I think we have a lot of, of preconceptions about what it looks like to have, you know, a lot of us want preformed, fully developed leaders to just show up on our doorstep with a little bow on their head. Like, does Amazon sell that? Right? Like, that's not how it works. That's not how it works. So let's look at who these men were. First of all, they were the outcasts. These were those who were on the periphery of society. And in this moment, David could relate to them because now he was that guy. It's funny that God prepared him in that way. God made him an outcast so that he could receive outcasts. These are, these are men of various races, and ethnicities, and religious backgrounds. These are men of various occupations. These are farmers and shepherds and a handful of ex-military, men who used to be in Israel's army. Men with humble weaponry. These are men who primarily their weapons were, were comprised of farming tools that they, had, that they had forged into spears. These are men that carried clubs that were fashioned out of branches of trees. That, that was the weapons that they used. These are men with trouble in their past and a chip on their shoulder after years of unrest. So here's the first thing that we need to know is that mighty men are often broken men. Mighty men are often broken men. It says that, and everyone that was in distress and everyone that was in debt and everyone that was discontented now, I believe personally that leaders are men who understand suffering. And I don't really believe that you can lead and lead effectively until you understand suffering. Now, now understanding suffering comes two different ways. Either you can be in tune with the Holy Spirit 
and humble before the Lord and understand brokenness because you choose to be contrite. Right? And so then you become a, you become a broken man who understands the suffering of the fellowship of Christ. You can, I think there's a spiritual path, a shortcut, if you will, to being a broken man. Okay? But I think a lot of times broken men are made broken because of their circumstances. These are men that have, have endured suffering, people that have gone through hardship, that God had to break the hard way before he put them on the path to spiritual development and humility. But either way, either way, real leaders, mighty men, must be broken men. They must be broken. They cannot have their original form, if you will. They cannot stand in the power of their own might. They must be broken. They must be like Jabed, uh, Jacob, who was, who was touched in his Achilles. Right? These are, these are men that, that understand suffering. Paul had the thorn in his, in his side, in his flesh. Psalm 34, 17 says, The righteous cry, and the Lord heareth, and delivereth them out of all their troubles. The Lord is nigh unto them that are of a broken heart, and saveth such as be a contrite spirit. Many are the afflictions of the righteous. But the Lord delivereth him out of them all. He keepeth all his bones. Not one of them is broken. Evil shall slay the wicked, and they that hate the righteous shall be desolate. The Lord redeemeth the soul of his servants, and none of them that trust in him shall be desolate. What a wonderful promise on so many levels. So many levels. But it begins with a broken heart and a contrite spirit. The next thing is that they, they join themselves to an outsider. They chose to join themselves to an outsider. They, they themselves became outcasts with the outcast. David became their captain. And listen to me, this, this is important for us. Not because he gathered them, but because they gathered to him. They gathered themselves unto him, and he became a captain over them. So how do you, this is an important question, how do you establish, how do you know who to establish in the work as you look around? How do you know who to establish in the work? And I think that this is important. Well, whoever chose you. <laughs> I mean, we so often want to handpick and select. But listen, whoever chose you a lot of time is the one that you need to focus on. Whoever's knit themselves to you, whoever has, has selected you to be their leader, who's selected you to pastor them. See, the best spiritual investment uh, is always the one God gives you, not by the choice that you make, but by the choice he makes. I want to just briefly, just by, by way of example, express to you how I came to follow Sam Miles. Okay? <clears throat> So when I was, I was 18 years old, I ended up in the Checkpoint College ministry at Midtown, or at Kansas City Baptist Temple, okay? And uh, I, I, I didn't know who I was. <laughs> I mean, I felt like an outcast. Um, you guys have seen, you know, just how grungy I can look. Well, I showed up looking like that, you know? And... Uh, and I didn't, you know, I didn't know if I fit in. I didn't know if this was a place where I belonged, but... 
I knew it was where God had me at the time. And um, thankfully, uh, after just a couple months, Dan Renault came up to me and said, because gr- Dan was also grungy and weird. Uh, and so we, there was a kindredness there. And so he came up to me and he said, hey, have you, I don't know you. <laughs> My name's Dan. Have you ever thought about discipleship? And, uh, and I said, no, uh, I haven't. And he said, you should. And I said, I'll pray about it. And then I signed up. I signed up. Okay. Time passed, man. Dan made an incredible investment in me. Sam became my pastor. And um, at the point that, that God led Sam to Midtown to plant a church in the urban core, there was nowhere else on earth I was going to go. Now, not everyone went. I mean, that was a ministry, every bit of 250 people. And it was only just a handful of outcasts were like, yeah, we'll do that. Eric was one of those weirdos. And I, look, I didn't even know what we were really getting into. I mean, I think some of the older guys understood, like, like this is a big deal. I, listen to me. I had no idea what I was getting into. And maybe if I did, I wouldn't, I wouldn't have done it. All I knew was that that was God's man. That's all I knew. And for me, I had chosen him. And God did the rest. God did the rest. So here's the good news. Here's the good news for David and for all of us who long for and are desperate for God to use us. Mighty men are men that aren't afraid to follow broken men. You know, I think it's weak men that are looking for shiny and glossy leaders who appear to have everything put together that have all the resources, that have the big church, the big ministries with all the cool stuff, all the bells and whistles. I think weak men are prone to follow those kind of men. But broken men follow broken men. That's what they do. Are you broken? Here's the next thing, is that they chose inconvenience and hardship. They chose inconvenience and hardship. I mean, essentially, they chose to live in a cave. That's, that's, that's what they chose. They l- chose to live in the wilderness. And so here's the key, next key point. Mighty men are not afraid of the uncharted path. These are men that knew that if they, if they choose to follow this guy on the run, if they choose to follow a man on the run, that they and their families would become pilgrims indefinitely. Like their foreseeable future is taking themselves and potentially their families, their wives, their children, and going on the run in the wilderness for, for maybe the rest of their lives. They would find themselves traveling through mountains and desert places. 
They would face lions and beasts of the wilderness, and they did. Benaiah slays a lion, right? They would face battles and ambushes. And listen, they would face the mockings of their countrymen. And yet they would remain devoted. Why? Why? Because real mighty men, real ones, just, just, like, just like the ones we're developing, they read the stories of the scriptures. And they realize that there has to be something more to their lives than this. There has to be something more. I'm discontented. I'm indebted. I'm, I'm, I'm distressed all around. The world has provided me with no purpose. I have nowhere to turn. And my Christianity is, is nominal. It's cold. It's, it's empty. I, I don't have any purpose in it. And then they read Hebrews 11. And they say, that's me. I choose stranger and pilgrim. I choose that. That is my path. Those are mighty men. And why did they choose to follow David? Because they hated Saul? Because they needed a way to make some quick money? Because they felt their tribes and communities had forgotten them? Was this the populist uprising? You know, maybe, maybe it was all of those things. Maybe all of those things contributed to their decision-making. But I'll tell you this, what's evident from the text is that they joined themselves to David because they recognized God's purpose on his life. They recognized God's purpose on his life, and that's why they chose David and not some other path. Can, can the growing leaders in your ministry See God's purpose on your life. I mean, some of us, some of us leaders are so woe is me and so distracted that when our congregation looks at us, they can't identify the purpose in what we're doing. And that has to change. <clears throat> We've got to get back to the basics. We have to fall, go, come back to our first love. We have to be stirred in the purposes of Christ. We have to choose brokenness and we have to choose to be pilgrims and then men will see the cause in us. And that's our next key point. <clears throat> Mighty men are always looking for a cause greater than their own. That's what mighty men look for. Oh, you, oh, you want to go win all of Kansas City to Christ and you want to do it from 40th and Walnut That sounds fun. <laughs> That's, that sounds like a great time. That sounds like something I can get behind. Let's go. Let's do it. Mighty men are, are looking for a cause greater than their own. Do you as their leader present one of those to them? Do you present them with one of those causes? Do you... Do you make the Great Commission accessible to them? 
So David has 400 troops. And they're committed to serving him. Now there's no mention of mighty men yet in this account. But they're there. They're there. They're mixed in with that band of soldiers. They just haven't been identified yet. Now during this time, remember that the greatest enemy of Israel was the Philistines. They were at war with the Philistines for almost 150 years, besides uh, 40 years of peace under Samuel. <coughs> so, so the Philistines are, are the, the great enemy of Israel, and killing Philistines was David's favorite pastime. Okay, It was his business as a captain in Saul's army. We can read that in 1 Samuel 19. But just because he was an outcast, you know, and he was no longer serving under the Israel army, didn't mean he was going to quit the ministry of killing Philistines. He wasn't going to give that up so easy. He had addicted himself to it, if you will. And so the Philistines, you know, these were the enemies of God, and they were a plague on the people of God. And so David was devoted to the ministry of protecting and providing for the scattered tribes of Israel. That was still who he was in his core. So just as David begins to rally these men together, they're most, almost immediately called into action when they hear that the Philistines are busy terrorizing and pillaging in the low, lowlands of Judea. So this is where we'll pick up. And, in 1 Samuel 23, 1, it says, Then they told David, saying, Behold, the Philistines fight against Calah, and they robbed the threshing floors. So the Philistines are going into the, the, the small villages, and they are they're pillaging. Okay? And, and so David's heart is stirred by this. But imagine for a moment, David has just gathered, gathered these men together, and he is suddenly now responsible for provi- pro- providing for them and feeding them. I mean, they are a new group, right? Untested. And so when they catch word that this is going on, man, even though David is stirred into action, he recognizes that there's a need to pause and to seek the guidance of the Lord. Okay, God, what would you have us to do? What would you have for us? Therefore, David inquired of the Lord, saying, Shall I go and smite these Philistines? And the Lord said unto David, Go and smite the Philistines and save Calah. And David's men said unto him, Behold, we be afraid here in Judah. How much more then if we come to Calah against the armies of the Philistines? So in other words, hey, we're huddled together here and things are a little scary within our own camp at this moment. Like things feel a little unsure and you already are wanting to go out and like fight Philistines? Dude, it seems, it seems a little premature. And there's so many of them and there's so few of us and we're kind of afraid. So I want to say here that this is so revealing of, of how many, com- of, of many different conversations that pastors have with growing leaders. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm often engaging with young adults who are wor- still in college, working part-time jobs, 
Uh, they are in LFBI. They are in Bible study. They're discipling. They're busy. They come to church on Sundays. They come to church on Tuesdays. They have relationships they're supposed to keep with their family members. They've got so much going on in their lives. Some of them are getting married. Some of them even are beginning to have kids because people have kids when they're like 22 now. I mean, it's like it's, like it's 1800s over there in Kaya. Like people are having kids when they're like 19, 20 years old. Everybody's having kids. But there's so much transition there's so much transition happening all the time in their lives and they often come to me and you, you deal with this in ministry too and they're like, I don't know if I can. I got a lot going on right here. And so it's not our responsibility to say, no, you will. We, we don't lord over God's flock. We are under shepherds. We let the Spirit of God do what the Spirit of God does. But it doesn't mean that we're not supposed to provoke and ask people to consider or to pray specifically or to reassess. But ultimately, it's our job to call them to pray. (laughs) So David's already got an answer from the Lord, and yet, and yet, He's willing to go inquire again. Now, here's here's the key point that I want to get to before I get ahead of myself. Here's the key point. Mighty men don't know what is possible until they've been stretched. Mighty men don't always know what's what's, what's possible in their lives until they allow themselves into stretching situations. Like, they need to be in situations where it hurts sometimes. You know? where they've got, they've got a lot to prepare, or they've got a lot of studying to do, or, or LFBI's been really busy this week, but yet I'm supposed to preach at the jail on Sunday. Or, or, or I, I know I've got, a, I've, I've got my kids to take care of, I've got to drop them off over here, I've got to do this or that, and I've got a really busy week with, with doctor's appointments and blah, 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 but also I've got to prepare for such and such ministry, and it's just been a really big and busy week. And you know what? That's so good. And we've got to teach them not to complain about that. If, our, if the pastors are complaining because they're busy, like I want to I warn you right now. I had to learn this the hard way. You need to learn not to complain when you're really busy because they hear that. And they, they need to normalize seasons of stretching. They need to normalize their capacity getting pushed to the limits. And we know that it happens in seasons, but we need them to be stretched because, listen to me, if they're going to be mighty men, They need to know what they're capable of in Christ, which is way more than what they imagine in their minds. In Christ, we can do the impossible. So these men don't yet know what they are capable of. These these men don't yet have faith that God can use them. These men can't see the mission beyond the ministry in front of them. And what we learn here is, is that when, men, uh, when young leaders say, I don't know if I can, then it's our job to say, well, let's pray some more. So that's what David did. Verse four says, then David inquired of the Lord yet again, and the Lord answered him and said, arise, go down to Calah, for I will deliver the Philistines into thine hand. So he prays again, and the Lord gives him the same answer. And so he rallies the troops, and David and his men went to Calah and fought with the Philistines and brought away their cattle and smote them with a great slaughter. So David sa- uh, saved the inhabitants of Calah. So they fight, and they, re- and they recover, and they put down the enemy. And the men of God are getting a taste of what it means to run with strength and faith. 
They are now getting a taste of what they are capable of. Oh my goodness. We thought we couldn't, but in Christ, in God, we could. And every growing leader, every mighty man that's coming up in the ranks is going to have to learn that. But then sometimes ministry gets complex. I mean, sometimes, sometimes ministry gets real weird. And there's a lot to learn when ministry gets weird. Now, just in terms of the narrative, from this moment on, these are fighting men. I mean, these are men that are fighting the Amalekites and the Ammonites. These, these men are, are busy. They are providing. They are um, expanding their army. And these are men that are committed to living in what I would refer to as the in-between. Right? Which is where so many of us need to live in terms of ministry. We do need to live somewhere between the, the safety of the church and the danger of the world. Right? We need to push ourselves out into the darkness. We need to do exploits. And then we need to kind, come find respite among the congregation of believers. And then we need to send, be sent back out. We need to go into the darkness. We need to live in the fray. That's where we need to live. And that's where these men live. But when you live in the fray, things can get complicated. So they're somewhere in between their loyalty to Israel and being an enemy of the state. That's a weird place to be. They're somewhere in between living in the land of their enemy, but also exploiting them every day. The ministry had gotten complex. And the army of David had become one part raiders and mercenaries and one part diplomats and ambassadors for the future king. And we know that when ministry gets difficult and complex, our unity and loyalty gets tested. And that's, the, that's where I want to focus, is that what, what happens when the complexity of ministry causes our unity to get tested, when mighty men have their unity tested, it is the responsibility of the pastors and leaders to fight for and insist upon unity. If you're familiar with the story, David has a seriously crummy situation on his hands. I mean, he, he was in a pickle. Because he had built an alliance with Achish and was living in the land of the Philistines and yet hiding the fact that he was exploiting the Philistines all along. Now, the problem comes in the communication between Achish and David. Because Achish was certainly under the impression that David had become his man. Now there's a problem here. And this is, a, this is a warning for every leader. David had established an unholy alliance with someone who was not good for his congregation. Someone who wasn't good for the mission. He had built an unholy alliance. And listen to me, pastors do that too. We've got to be careful who we join ourselves to in the ministry. If we make unholy alliances, it has the ability to cause serious damage 
to the congregation and to the mission that we're called to invest in. We need to be very careful about who we put ourselves alongside. And so in the story, David was essentially voluntold that he would have to go to war against Saul on behalf of the Philistines. Now, praise God, because God intervened, and David and his military, was, they were dismissed from that objective. They weren't trusted, and, and, so, and so David's like, Whew. because what was David going to do? I mean, the story doesn't even tell us, right? Certainly, I, I like to believe he had a plan, but man, I, it, was a, it was a pickle. It was a serious situation. And this dude's like, oh gosh, thank you, Lord, that I didn't have to fight against your anointed man. What would I have even done? So God delivers him from that situation. But the problem is damage had already been done. And so relieved, the troop heads home to Ziklag only to find that everyone and everything was gone. 1 Samuel 30, verse 1 says, And it came to pass when David and his men were come to Ziklag on the third day that the Amalekites had invaded the south. And Ziklag, uh, and Ziklag, and smitten Ziklag, Ziklag, and burned it with fire, and had taken the women captives that were there, therein. They slew not any, either great or small, but carried them away and went on their, uh, on their way. So David and his men came to the city, and behold, it was burned with fire, and their wives and their sons and their daughters were taken captives. Then David and the people that were with him lifted up their voice and wept until they had no more power to weep. And David's two wives were taken captives. Ahinoam, the Jezreelitess, and Abigail, the wife of Nabal, the, the Carmelite. And David was greatly distressed, for the people spake of stoning him. Things aren't good in the camp of David. Because the soul of all the people was grieved, every man for his sons and for his daughters, but David encouraged himself in the Lord his God. So here we have it, David's case. David's case of missions creep had landed him in a situation where there were grave, potentially grave outcomes. I mean, this could turn real bad the unity of, of the men was being tested. See, David had gotten off vision for a minute and it ended up biting him in the rear. But the good news is that David has already established that whenever he's against the wall, there's only one thing that he can do and that's call upon God. He's a man of prayer. I mean, are you catching a theme here? I think pastors, I think pastors' vision will always be limited by their lack of prayer. I mean, I think that was true in Kayla, right? I mean, it was prayer that produced vision. But, but I also think that, I think that unity in our congregation will always be limited by the lack of prayer. When we aren't a praying people, we aren't a unified people. You understand? And so if prayer is not a priority in your church, then that could be a root issue in terms of your unity. We have to be a praying people because prayer is where the answers come from. Prayer is where the unity happens. It's in that corporate prayer. We must be a praying people 
if we are to be a purpose to people. Now, now let's look at verse 7. And David said to Abiathar the priest, Ahimelech's son, I pray thee, bring me hither the ephod. And Abiathar brought thither the ephod to David. And David inquired at the Lord, saying, Shall I pursue after this troop? Shall I overtake them? And he answered him, Pursue, for thou shalt uh, surely overcome them, and without fail recover all. So David rallies his men together, and they take off. You can imagine just the urgency in their movement. Verse 17, it says, And David smote them, the Amalekites, from the twilight even unto the evening of the next day. And there escaped not a man of them, save 400 young men which rode upon camels and fled. And David recovered all that the Amalekites had carried away. And David rescued his two wives. And there was nothing lacking to them, neither great nor small, neither sons nor daughters, neither spoil nor anything that they had taken to them. David recovered all. And David took all the flocks and the herds which they drave from those other cattle and, and said, this is David's spoil. So he took spoil. Now listen, this is what's really important. Mighty men always find their unity within the cause. They always find their unity within the cause. This is a, a critical thing to understand. The cause cannot falter or the people will falter. The cause cannot falter or the people will falter. When we get bogged down with, with side quests in ministry and we get involved with ministry that's peripheral to the mission, we are in danger of dampening the fire of unity within the hearts of our leaders. If we have a million different agendas, and if the, if the builders on the wall of Jerusalem grow distant from one another, then we are setting ourselves up for division. As the work expands, man, we've got a lot of guys in here that are pastoring churches that are growing and they're growing fast. Small churches where discipleship is working and they're seeing year over year, God begin to expand their ranks. Listen, it's real easy to get busy with side quests. It's real easy to get off mission. And when you do that, your ranks get dispersed. And there is potential, there's potential for division. And so we have to come back under the banner of the thing that we started with. We have to be under the cause. We have to be men and women under the cause. See, the camaraderie of mighty men thrives when they know that they are being employed for kingdom business. The fire in their heart is stoked when they know that they are being used to achieve the great commission that God had, has given them. Now, I think that there's more to this thing of unity. I want to start in verse 21. I got some more reading to do, so follow with me. And David came to the 200 men, which were so faint that they could, know, uh, that they could not follow David. So if you know the story, you know there's about 200 of the men of the 600 that couldn't go any further, uh, that they were so tired, they were so weakened. They had run all the way to Ziklag, and they just weren't, their bodies weren't like the 400. The 200 weren't like the 400 before them who'd been running for a long time. And so there was another 200 that just weren't up, up to, the, to the task. And so they're, they're chasing after the Amalekites. They grow tired. They have to sit down. Their, their feet are blistered. They're worn down. And so you can imagine the other 400 have to go on without them. Now, here we have, they come back to these 200. 
whom they had made also to abide at the brook of Bezor. And they, they went forth to meet David and to meet the people that were with him. And when David came near to the people, he saluted, he saluted them. Then answered all the wicked men and men of Belial of those that went with David and said, because they went not with us, so these are men in the ranks who said, because they went not with us, we will not give them of the spoil that we have recovered, save to every man his wife and his children, that they may lead them away and depart. Then said David, ye shall not do so, my brethren, with that which the Lord hath given us, who hath preserved us and delivered the company that came against us into our hand. For who will hearken unto you in this matter? But as his part is that goeth down to the battle, so shall his part be that tarried by the stuff. And they shall part alike. And it was so from that day forth that he made it a statute and an ordinance for Israel unto this day. And David came to Ziklag. He sent of the spoil unto the elders of Judah. So this is him making, making uh, peace with all of the, the other tribes and villages. And we see him here. Uh, he takes of the spoils of the enemies. And he gives it to Ziklag, and he gives it to Bethel, and to Ramoth, and, the, and to Jatir, and Aror, and to them which were in Sifmoth, and to them which were in Eshtimoah, and to them which were of Rakal, and them which were of uh, Jeremelites. That was the one I practiced. So that one's a tough one. And to them which were in the cities, uh, the cities of the Kenites, and to them which were of Hormah, and to them which were of uh, uh, Chashoshan, and to them that were of Atak, and to them that were of Hebron, and all the places where David himself and his men were wont to haunt. Which is a great phrase, want to haunt. Should be the name of a dance album. Um, so, what did David do? What did David do here that was so unique? Here's our key point. Mighty men will find their unity within a spirit of equality and, and charity. Mighty men will find their unity within a spirit of equality and charity. So what did David do here that was so special? David reasserted his commitment to the cities who he represented, didn't he? He's a giving man. We talked about a givers and takers. Here we have David, a giving man. He takes the spoils, and this is his habit. This is the statute from here on. Whatever we get in our mercenary dealings, in our raids, when we, when we destroy the Amalekites or the Ammonites, whatever we take, we are going to disperse it among these villages and these people of Judah. And this is how he won them over. This is how he became the king of Judah. With like, everybody was about it. It's because they learned to love him this way because he was a man of fairness and equality and sacrifice. Now, more important to what we're talking about, more importantly to us, is that he reasserted his commitment to loving his men equally. Each one with their unique giftings and their unique deficiencies. Unique strengths and weaknesses. He loved them and he rewarded them equally. Now, we, listen, this is what we need to learn. We cannot afford to play favorites within our leadership. We cannot create a leadership class within our church. We cannot, we cannot have the elites that we pander to and we spend all of our time with and we're like this. With other mighty men and women who, who, who just don't happen to be in that circle looking in from the outside. We have to avoid that. We have to find a way of loving everyone equally. It's not always easy to do, but we have to find a way to do it. Even as certain men to be, begin to distinguish themselves as pastors and elders, and, and even as those men require more of your time and energy for the sake of equipping, the church as a whole and the teams of leaders in your congregation 
must know that you are for them and that you love them all equally with the love of a father and a shepherd. They have to know that if you want to retain unity. Are you guys, are you guys hearing this? That's what David did. And man, those men were loyal. Those men, those men fought for and with David as they would fight for themselves, as they would fight for their own family. They loved him. And here they are, man, the soldiers of David. And they went out with him. And they did exploits with him. And he drew the sword with them in battle. And the blood of their enemies was on all of them. And they saw that David was a man of grit. He was a man of the people. That anything that he asked of them, he was willing to do himself. He was a true servant leader when he was at his best. And that is the type of leader that we should strive to be. And that is the type of leader that reproduces himself in the next generation. Now it's from this moment forward that within David's army, a handful of men began to differentiate themselves from the rest. Among the 600, and there would be an initial 30 men that stand out as the gibberim, the mighty men. Later, that, that number would grow to, to 37 and, and possibly as many as 54 men who were the elites in his army. They were the elites. This was, this was the, these were the special forces of David. These were men that were distinct for their power and strength in battle. They're, they're, I mean, this is a battalion of men with the strength of Samson. These guys are freaks. And we know that this is kind of how it works in ministry. Every soldier is important in the army, but there are some that distinguish themselves, Right? There were the 120 that Jesus had. And then there were the 12, and then there was the three, and then there was the one. Now these men had been trained under David, who, who in my opinion, according to the biblical record, was probably the greatest warrior to ever live. I mean, in terms of scripture, I cannot find anyone like him. David was fierce, and if he did slay his ten thousands, name another man like that. I mean, they're fighting with the they're fighting with the greatest warrior ever. Now, based on this, I, I want to make I want to make one last point that I think summarizes everything and sets up Kenny nicely. Here's an observation from what I believe is one of the coolest passages in Scripture 
And it'll give us our final takeaway, and it's this. 2 Samuel 21, 15. Let's read together. Let's read this account together. And then, and then we'll try to draw um, something important from it. Verse 15. Moreover, the Philistines had yet war again. And so here we have David the king. And he's getting older. He's getting older. And he's had a lot of drama I mean, he's had some failures along the way. I mean, this is kind of a different man than what they ran with in the early years. But he was a man who had come back to the mission. And so that's who we find. That's the David we find here in verse 15, a David that was back on mission. Maybe a little worn, a little, a, a little old, but, uh, but nonetheless a, a, a man of war. And so, moreover, the Philistines had yet war again with Israel, and David went down. A lot different than the time, you know, with Bathsheba, right? And his servants with him, and fought against the Philistines, and David waxed faint. And Ishbibinab, which was the son, uh, which was of the sons of the giant, the weight of whose spear weighed three hundred shekels of brass in weight. So this is the son of Goliath. He being girded with a new sword, which I guess is apparently supposed to be scary. He's got a new sword. Thought to have slain David. That was this, this, this giant was determined to avenge his father and to slay David. But Abishai, the son of Zariah, secured him and smote the Philistine and killed him. Then the men of David swear unto him, saying, Thou shalt not go no more out with us to battle. That thou quench not the light of Israel. In other words, dude, you've got a lot of leadership to do. And we can't afford you to be killed in battle with us. Like there's just too much hanging in the balance. And it came to pass after this that there was again a battle with the Philistines of Gob. Then Sibichai and the Hushathite slew Saph, which was of the sons of the giant. And there was again a battle in Gob with the Philistines, where Elhanan, the son of Jeragorim, if I said that right, a Bethlehemite, slew the brother of Goliath, the Gittite, the staff of whose spear was like a weaver's beam. And there was yet a battle in Gath, where a man of great stature, that had on every hand six fingers and every foot six toes, four and twenty in number, and he also was born to the giant. And when he defied Israel, Jonathan, the son of Shemaiah, the brother of David, slew him. These four were, bo- uh, were born to the giant in Gath and fell by the hand of David and by the hand of his servants. The day had come. David, the giant slayer, could no longer engage in battle the way he could in his youth. He had been slowed with time. But the young men, the young men that he had spent his life training had surpassed him in strength and might. Now we read this and we think, oh, David. I mean, it hurts us to see that that he was weak, that he just wasn't quite the same, that, that his role had changed, that something was different in him. And it hurts us and we think, man, we want to see David slay those giants. I mean, if we wrote the story, that's, that's how it would go. We'd make him the hero again. He would, 
This would be his moment of redemption. But listen, this was not his loss. This was his victory. The enemies that the mighty men defeated, each and every one of them, were the enemies that he defeated. Their victories were his. I mean, that's what it says. And fell, these men that they killed, these four giants, fell by the hand of David and by the hand of of his servants. These are are W's accounted to to his record. See, these men, these men that he had spent his life training, They had become the joy of their spiritual father and successors in his fight. David had slain his giant, but his legacy, his legacy, they were slaying their giants. And what we take away from here is perhaps one of the most important truths that we can gain from today's teaching, and that's this. Only mighty men can reproduce mighty men. Only giant slayers can raise and train up giant slayers. And you may slay one or two giants in your lifetime, But if you train up the next generation, then they will slay their giants by the dozens. And these mighty men will become the apple of your eye and the pride of your heritage. And the flame of the torch will burn brightly. And it will be passed from one generation to the next because you played your part. We cannot afford to get off mission. We cannot afford to make excuses. We are raising up the most fearful and anxious generation that at least our country has ever seen. We cannot quit on them. And with the testimony of my own eyes, I have seen this generation do mightier things than what I could ever do. So fight the good fight and commit yourself to the work of your youth and disciple and train and evangelize until you put yourself in the grave and believe that your heritage will carry on in faith. Do not quit. I love you, and I thank you so much. This, this weekend, this week, will have been a, a highlight of my entire life. Thank you for sharing it with me, and uh, I'm gonna pray for you, and I'll hand it over. 
We hope this message was a blessing to you. If you're interested in learning more about the Living Faith Fellowship, visit lffellowship.com. God bless.